The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. Nobody but nobody has greater access to the corridors of power and all learn than my next guest, News Talk's political editor, Shane Coleman. Uh, in Cabinet today, they were discussing bin charges and something called the Summer Economic Statement. Shane had his ear to the keyhole. And what did you find out? Uh, well, do you want to talk about bin charges or do you want to talk about the economy? You first? tell me. Well, the uh, economy, the economy. Yeah, I think the economy, economy is more because the bin charges thing has been, I think, defer- certainly is being kicked down yeah. the road anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I suspect we, we'll hear more about it in a year's time. The the summer statement, which used to be the spring statement, which is part of this new framework, budgetary framework that the EU insisted upon after our economic meltdown, was published today. And I mean, there is no doubt about it, first of all. The economy is doing extraordinarily well. Um, the the growth rates uh, averaging, well, what is it last year? I think 7.8% last year. I mean, that's Celtic Tiger growth. Um, Michael Loon predicting it'll be 5% uh, in, the, in the current year and similar growth rates for next year. But you can't keep year. doing that. Economies don't keep doing that. No, and I mean there is a danger now, look there's also a lot of, there's also more money to spend than in, in the upcoming budget than had heretofore been the Is this the, a fiduciary uh, space or whatever The, the fiscal it? space, yeah. I, uh, those two words, the F word we hadn't heard since yeah. the election but it's back on and um, an extra 11.3 billion to spend over the next five years which to be fair to Michael Noonan is pretty much what he was talking about in the general election campaign when he got pilloried for using that figures and saying it actually wasn't sustainable. It actually has proven to be the case because the economy is doing so well and it is producing resources. And there's lots of stuff in the in this spring statement about cutting taxes, cutting the USC, spending spending more money, the minimum wage going up and so on. The question is, and there's a little bit of it in the SRI report today, um, John Fitzgerald is also writing about it today. I mean, is there a danger that the economy, are we... Are we now where we were at, say, in 1999 or 2000? Of course we are. But of course we are. Like, it, it is in nature of uh, economics, boom and bust. Like, it's nature of economics. So you know that it's going to be followed by something else. Yeah, well, it's certainly and the nature, can't it's the nature of economics yeah. in Ireland. I don't think it's the nature of economics in Germany. And th- uh, this is the question I keep asking. In every budget in Germany, do they dramatically raise taxes one year? Uh, do they dramatically cut taxes no, for a period? No. I suspect they don't. I suspect they keep things... Sti- but Germans we, don't borrow money. No, Germans don't spend money. In, like Germans are completely different from us. They are. Um, and I just wonder, are we slipping back into old habits? Now, the, the kind of proposals that Michael Loon was talking about today in terms of tax cuts and spending, he's talking about an extra billion a year being available. That's on top of what they've made allowances for with the Lansdowne Road Agreement, with yeah. uh, inflation and all that. Now, it's it's you would imagine it's not particularly 
excessive. After 2018, though, there's going to be a lot more money available, something like three billion a year. Now that what definitely do you mean available, three billion available if we want if we want to use it to to cut taxes to increase spending. Now at the same time, we're also spending very little on capital, but this capital spending, which is really important. We're not spending money on infrastructure to to any now. Pascal Dunn, who said today there'd be an extra billion euros over the next few years to spend, that's chicken feed when it comes to infrastructure. I mean, a billion euro will barely build you one Lewis line. But if you turned around to the Irish people and said to them, we can actually mean that when you go into a and you'll be seen 30 minutes and you won't be on a trolley and or, and if you and you know um, there won't be 74 home families homeless every month and we won't. unfortunately in order to do all that we can't cut your taxes would the Irish people then kick you out of government uh, very possibly that's the point yeah it is the point and I mean, this this idea about, you know, phasing out USC over the next five years, that has not gone away. They're talking about, you know, there'll be further reductions in the USC. Uh, the hated tax were repeatedly told. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be people texting and saying it is an unfair tax and it is a wrong tax. Well, it why is, is it unfair? Well, I, I don't personally don't believe it is unfair. I actually think our tax rates at the moment well, are probably yeah, but about it's, right. Yeah, it's really interesting about USC, for instance, if you're an author, right, and you don't pay tax in your book, the great Charlie Hawhey giveaway, but you have to pay USC. So USC catches a lot of it income does. that is previously untaxed. It does, and it's there are a, a significant cohort. The idea of USC in the first place, when when Brian Lenhan brought it in, was at the time there was something like fifty percent of the of the population of workers. Sorry, not the population of workers not paying any tax at all, which was but utterly unsustainable. But this is what they want to do again. This they are. You're right. They're constantly moving yeah. more and more people out of the tax net. Now, I, I am absolutely, and I think mo- I, everybody would be in favour of a progressive tax system. I have a problem with tax systems where large chunks of the population pay no tax at all. Well, it, it, this was the Bertie Hearn, Charlie McCreevy, Mary Harney School of Economics, which is nobody needs to pay tax, but we'll have more money, you know. And the, the thing is that tax is there for a reason. It's the revenue the government gets in order to run the country. Mm. And, you see, I think everything should be taxed. I think unemployment benefits should be taxed, uh, everything. Now, obviously, if you're on unemployed and you're getting 180 quid a week, you won't pay any tax, obviously. Yeah. But if we taxed everything, people might pay 10 bucks a year tax, but they'd suddenly feel invested I, 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 in I, the I country. Abso- I, absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. Um, there is talk of... Uh, a con- well, Mike and Lunan said there would be a contingency fund. The government would start a contingency fund right. to put a rainy day fund to mo- put money aside. The problem is that's not going to happen until 2019. And I actually put it to him at the press conference, is there a danger at that stage that you're closing the gate after the horse is bolted? And he said, no, uh, we're not overheating at the moment. There's plenty of, of, of scope left for the economy to grow. But you look at what the ESRI are saying in their report today and the OECD report today, they're saying the economy could come close to overheating, especially if we start building 30,000 houses a year. That's going to add further fuel. That's going to bring unemployment down, which is good. 
But we are coming to the point where we go, we're, we're going to have to start making unpalatable decisions. No chance. No I, chance. I would tend to agree with you. I would tend to agree Absolutely with you. no chance. But you if, don't George, think. George, you it is this clear. If we do not take those decisions, let's be, let's be 100% clear. And let's not, because people say, oh, we were never told, we were never warned. The warning signs are there now. And there are there in reports from the Fiscal Council, from the ESRI, from the OECD. If we don't take those unpalatable decisions and stop cutting taxes or even increase taxes and try and take some of the heat out of the economy, well, then we will go back into because a boom Fine Gael are terrified that the good times roll when Fine Fall get into back into power and they'll get all the credit. Mm. And they're just terrified. And the, 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 the thing is, once upon a time, because you had control over interest rates and you you had control over the exchange rate. Yeah, you had control you, over monetary policy. Now we only have fiscal policy. Correct. And politically, it is unpalatable to make any yeah. negative changes. Polit- politicians should not be in charge of the country's finances. Well, in one minute, I'm not sure in 60 seconds. Bin charges. Bin charges are, any increases are, um, uh, the new system has effectively been deferred for a year. You can, if you want, opt for a pay by weight. There will be a dual system on your, uh, on your, uh, your, your bills where you will see what you're currently paying and what you would be paying under the pay by weight. But it is only a matter of time before the pay by weight system comes in. We need to move to a pay by weight system in order to reduce the percentage going to landfill. So it is going to happen but it has been put off for a year to okay. allow time to to educate people, I suppose, and to allow people co- uh, time to come to terms with what it involves. You come to terms with a 300% increase. It's very easy it's, to come it's, it's to not, a 300% well, that's, that's, that's increase not, if you wait it's not, as, it's not as simple as that. It's, not as, it's nowhere near as straightforward as that. Certainly, it is exactly. The, 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 no, it's My a, bill has just gone from one to three. That's 300% in any man's language. Well, I'd, I'd love to see your bill because... I had a look at mine and it has certainly hasn't gone up. And there's certainly an issue about the standing charges and that will have to be addressed in yeah, the coming you, 12 you months. You might be with Greyhound and I might be but, with Murphy's but you, George, you, you famously told me once that you you don't know what goes into the brown bin and what goes into the green bin and the, and the black bin. I don't. Bin. You and Ivan Yates are the only two people in, in the in, world who well, don't know. I suspect not because there's way too much waste going into the black no, bin that I, should be going into green look, and brown I, bins. I, look, I have to go because lovely Ingrid is popping in to talk Japanese knotweed to me. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Don't, don't, don't tune out. Just because I mentioned the word pensions, don't think it doesn't apply to you. This may well be one of the most critical interviews you've listened to in a long time. The Pension Policy Research Group is holding its annual conference today in Trinity College, Dublin. My next guest made the opening address and raised lots of issues around pensions, uh, particularly issues that this programme has been concerned about for a long time. I'm joined by the chairman of the Pensions Authority, David Bagg. David, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. One of the points you make, of course, is that Uh, like I tried to do in my opening remarks, that a lot of people in their 20s and 30s don't think pensions are important. I have to tell you, this has been around for well over 50 years. The great Prudential Insurance Company 
used to run an advertising campaign um, in which they had the four ages of man. And the early ages, he said, I don't care about a pension. Then suddenly at 50, he said, what am I going to do? I have no pension. Um, And in fact, the position is probably less attractive now, is it not? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, this is human nature. This is understandable. In the years when you're trying to get your family educated and pay for your mortgage and so on, uh, you know, you people think of the immediate priority and pension aid seems a long, long, long way away. So there's a human dimension to it, uh, all right. And uh, unfortunately, as you say, the difficulty of it is then when some people wake up to the reality of it, it's often too late to accumulate enough money to provide for any kind of reasonable security in retirement. Well, even the most simplest difference now, of course, is that with uh, interest rates at history low levels, um, it's more and more difficult to actually make your savings count. Yeah, that's exactly the point I was making this morning because it's a kind of a double whammy. Uh, Normally, the alternative to putting your money in a bank and getting a return on interest is to invest it in equities or in government bonds. But government bonds are uh, providing yields, as they call it, uh, which are extremely low. And one of the reasons is uh, that so many... um, investors are putting money into what they regard as safe havens like German the German bonds or Swiss bonds uh, or whatever that uh, the rates are pushed down. And in fact, in just at the moment, there are negative interest rates. Uh, on those. So, you know, you're, you're more or less paying to uh, uh, to put your money into those investments. So that that is a bad situation. And then the, the problem with e- uh, equities, uh, that's you know, shares, stocks and shares, is that uh, you're looking at a very volatile uh, world at the moment. Uh, Anybody who's been following the Brexit debate in Britain just in the last 24 hours or so, you know, uh, could have seen initially a collapse and secondly then a recovery in the shares. So there is a lot of uncertainty there. So what do we do, though? Yeah, I was going to just say, though, that in a sense, our problem really is this, that we've come through a period which was dubbed the Great Moderation, when uh, reasonably high levels of economic growth and stable levels of inflation were possible. But with the, with the financial turmoil of 2008, um, it's now revealed that the so-called Great Moderation was a shimmer. It didn't really exist. And we're into a much more volatile situation, uh, much more like the kind of world that Minsky described of, of constant uh, uh, fluctuations up and down. So it is a very difficult uh, problem for anybody to be absolutely certain about investments, particularly when you're trying to look for 30 to 40 years ahead. This is a very, very difficult... But, but uh, there are certain issues which every person listening knows. One, if, if if they're not in a house that they own at retirement age and are in a rental situation, the rent that they can pay um, from a full salary and the rent that they can pay from a pension, which is less than that, it, it creates a crisis. The, the second issue is that um, if... 
people don't invest in a pension, then in today's money, they have to live on €250 a week, which is manifestly impossible. So the people who are sending in text messages saying, I have a mortgage to pay, children to school, and meat to buy, the very points you've been making, we still have to say, I know, but you have to do the other thing as well. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. You do have to make provision for your old age because the while the state old age pension is very important as a bulwark of the system, as it were, it isn't sufficient really to provide for the standard of living that you need in retirement. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it, people just have to look uh, to those options. But and it, the extraordinary thing, a surprising number of people, you know, for 80% of the population, the reality of the matter is that the old age pension is the biggest part of their retirement income at the moment, and it really is not sufficient for But uh, you, you use the word shimmer. Yes. There's another shimmer, of course, which is retirement. Maybe uh, my, my children and grandchildren are just going to have to work until they drop. Well, certainly the, the trend is upward in working ages. I recall somebody saying to me some time ago that the first person to live to 150 is probably already born, which is an extraordinary um, possibility to consider. And as you know, right across Europe, uh, retirement, or at least the age at which you can receive your old age pension, is being gradually uh, increased, which provides some difficulty between um, the labour market conditions where you're supposed to, generally speaking, retire at 65 and the, the time period in which you receive the old age pension. But that trend is certainly upwards. And in some ways, for people who have a, sed- a sedentary type of uh, job or who, you know, are not physically pressurized by the job, this can be fine. But for other people who whose job is, say, lift, if you're a nurse and you're trying to lift people or if you're a builder lifting blocks or if you're someone who's cleaning and that type of thing, yeah, something true. very physically demanding, that can be very difficult. Okay, my guest is David Begg, Chairman of the Pensions Authority. He is at Trinity College today. The Pension Policy Research Group held its annual conference. And the scary thing is that so many people are not making a provision for old age. There are two things, though, I put to you, David Begg. Uh, and both of them are government. When Michael Noonan... Uh, uh, attacked the savings of people retrospectively in a budget. He, 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 what, what the government did, I think, to many people was to say, well, sure, if we save at some future date, if the government is short of cash, they'll just take our pension. Because never in the history of the state did a government take people's pension. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> to be straight about it, I have no remit to speak about uh, policy in that area, but I do understand the point you're making. Uh, that but you the, are at a conference of policy research oh, and yes, pensions. Yes, 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 I agree, but I, I'm canny enough not to stray into areas that I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm not responsible for. Right. But I would say this, I do acknowledge the point you're making, though. I mean, there was... I think myself, if you reflect back on that period, there was something of um, a disagreement between the Minister for Finance and the pensions industry at the time. 
And uh, he wasn't satisfied with responses he was getting. And I think he imposed this temporary, okay. this temporary levy. But I just didn't say about the temporary levy does actually finish. But the problem is for many people that the trustees of pensions funds, rather than impose the full burden over the four years that the levy applied, have spread it out over a longer period so people are still paying for it. And there is a second issue, in, in because we've known we've had a crisis in this country. I mean, we can look at Europe and all the other stuff, but if we stick to Ireland, this is a problem we've had for decades. We've known that this demographic time bomb exists. One of the and and I've, I've, the other one of government policy surely is taxation. The more attractive we make it surely to people to invest in pensions, the more likely they are in the shape of tax relief. Mm. Well, there are two things, I suppose, in that. First, on the question of the demographic time bomb. In fact, I suppose Ireland is in a slightly better position than most European countries in that we're about two generations behind the curve. Uh, so the, the demographic time bomb hasn't quite hit us yet, but it will. It's coming at us very very fast. So we have a little bit more time. And if we plan our way properly, we have a better possibility to deal with some of these issues than maybe some of the continental countries uh, had. So that's one point. Uh, The second point is on the tax question. Uh, This is a very hot topic because there are essentially two schools of thought. One, the one you just articulated yourself, that incentives should be increased and so on. Uh, There's another school of thought which says the difficulty with that is that we spend a lot of money, I think it's about 1.2 billion on tax incentives for pensions. Uh, And in the nature of things, it disproportionately, at least immediately, benefits the higher earning people because the rate at which the tax relief is given is at the higher rate. Now, of course, when people start to draw down their pensions, they are taxed on that as well. But there's a, cert- a certain arbitrage almost that you can get into it. If, you, if for instance, you, you get tax relief at 40% and you might be drawing out your pension at a tax rate of 20%, that affects some people. There's a school of thought, and in fact, these ideas were articulated today at that Trinity conference where people were saying, yeah, well, we, would we not be better off spending all of the tax uh, subsidies and putting it into the uh, state uh, old age pension? This is a big issue which will be debated for a long time. The problem is, well, look, would you wipe out the um, uh, private uh, pension provision system in the meantime? How would you affect the transition to a situation like that? So there's a lot to be discussed around those. They're all all legitimate questions, but we'll have to have at some point a public policy response to decide on those things. Okay, thank you so much for joining me. Chairman of the Pensions Authority, David Beck. 53106, uh, and don't tell me you have a mortgage and kids to go to school and meet the boy. What are you going to do when you're old? Stay tuned. Coming up next, the lovely Ingrid talks plants. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back. It's The Right Hook on News Talk. Well, news from Kerry. Kerry County Council has put aside €100,000 in its attempts to destroy knotweed 
which has held up the construction of new hospitals, covered stretches of the banks of the River Lawn near Calorglen, and may well damage countless dwellings. I'm joined now by uh, Ingrid Hook, no less, um, formerly the head of the School of Pharmacy at Trinity College Dublin and an expert in pharmacognosy. Ingrid, welcome to the programme. Well, hello, George. This is the only way I can speak to you now, on the phone. On the phone and on the radio. (laughs) Yeah, communicating by radio is quite a good thing. This could be a new first for marriages. Tell me, for those of us who are not experts in pharmacognosy, what's pharmacognosy? It actually means uh, knowledge of drugs um, generally, but more specifically, it deals with um, medicinal plants and plants used really... Uh, in pharmacy and the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, now, this knotweed we're reading about, a Japanese plant, it's been rapidly spreading around uh, Ireland. I'd never heard of it. Uh, Obviously, you're familiar with that. How did it, first of all, how did it come here all the way from Japan? Well, firstly, it's found not only in Kerry, Ireland, but indeed the rest of the world, and came originally to Ireland... um, in sort of the 1800s, it, and, and really through the, uh, to the rest of Europe. It's, it's quite an attractive plant. Um, so that's how a lot of these, these sort of um, giant hogweed is another one. They're pretty uh, until you realize you can't get rid of them. Now, and, yeah, go on. Yeah. Now, this knotweed, um, Ingrid, grows at a pretty fast rate. So this is a bit like the great movie The Day of the Triffids, is it? I mean, this thing just grows and grows. It grows, they, they reckon, at a rate of about four to eight inches per day. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's what's called a herbaceous perennial. In other words, over the winter months, it has its roots and rhizomes um, embedded in the soil and only comes up again in the spring when it grows rampantly. Um, at this very fast rate. So you can't essentially get rid of um, the roots. And from an environmental point of view, these um, curiosities, these curious but attractive plants are a problem because they tend to overpower indigenous plants um, and tend to grow along river banks and and forests where, in fact, people tend not to, to control them. And there are EU regulations with regard to the environmental impact of Japanese knotweed. Um, and there are companies actually set up specifically to try to get rid of these plants. Oh, but they, go, they grow through concrete, round uh, concrete walls and so on. Um, so that, that is a problem from the environmental Point of view, yeah. So the, the fact, and by the way, my guest is the former head of the School of Pharmacy at Trinity College, Ingrid Hook, no less. Um, but Ingrid, this thing grows through like tarmac Adam driveways, tr- through concrete. So you can see that the community hospital um, in Kerry, which is now being held up, that's because obviously the knotweed is in the site where they're building a hospital, and within a short period of time, it's suddenly going to be grown through the walls. I mean, that sounds slightly doomsday, but is that the way it is? That's the way it is. I mean, 
there, there's another little plot of land not too far away from here in, in Black Rock that has a similar problem. And the only way to get rid of it is, is to get these companies and literally manually on your hands and knees inject each stem and each root uh, with some suitable, uh, legally usable um, herbicide. But having said that, you know, if you look at it from a plant's point of view, it's a wonderful uh, weed because it does grow so fast and you can't get rid of it, so it's self-perpetuating. And also, just to stress the medicinal aspect of it, um, because it's not doom and gloom, it's actually referred to in, in some references as, a, as an edible plant. And I think this is what the, the other aspect that you were angling for um, that was in the paper today, that you could maybe eat your way through the, the infestation yeah, well, that's interesting, Ingrid, because you know I'm a fan of rhubarb, uh, and apparently this stuff is like rhubarb. So could you make rhubarb and custard out of this? Well, it actually belongs to the same plant family as rhubarb, and it does contain the same type of constituents as rhubarb. So if, in fact, you then mix it with your rhubarb, you will have the same effect that rhubarb has. Um, now, you know, you may, you may wish to have that effect or not, but it is the same family as, okay. as rhubarb. But, but it, also, yeah, from sorry. a medicinal point of view, it is a Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean, in other words, oriental medicinal plant. So it does have medicinal uses. Like what? Like, well, then, then you'd have to go through the whole Asian kind of, of concept of medicinal plants. All right, OK. We haven't got the weeks to explain that. All right. <laughs> no, we could do it every day. Listen, Ingrid, um, it's very difficult to get rid of. I mean, the mind boggles at fellas on their hands and knees around Kerry injecting the stems of plant after plant after plant. But but this is... is as you've said, uh, a weed that grows through concrete, tarmacadam, buildings, everything. Is the word crisis too big a word to use for this? Um, it has to be controlled. I mean, if, if, you, if you look at some websites, um, for example, in the UK, they have similar problems. And if, in fact, you have, you've purchased um, a plot of land for building your house on it and, and it's found to have Japanese knotweed growing on it, then you're actually not allowed to, to build on that until all that knotweed um, has been removed professionally. Now, considering that, in fact, um, the roots can grow up to about three meters, in other words, 10 feet um, in length into the soil and can spread in, in sort of a, a, a large area around that, you can imagine you'd actually have to excavate almost to to try to, to get rid of the, the roots. Yeah. Listen, Ingrid, we haven't got any knotweed in the back garden, have we? Uh, no. I, I, I have looked at this plant over many years, and although there are some, some local um, weed areas in, in the vicinity of where we're living, um, we haven't got any here. 
Yeah, because, I mean, Ingrid, your, your responsibility is the garden, and I'd hate to see you on your hands and knees injecting uh, not weed. Um, I don't think I would be reduced to that, George. Thank you very much. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for coming on the programme. It's um, illuminating, to say the least, and I'm sure Kerry County Council are listening uh, with rapt attention at the prospect of trying to get rid of plants that might grow uh, 10 feet tall. Absolutely. Or even 10 feet into the ground, which uh, would suggest a great deal of excavation. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'll see you tonight around half seven. Nice to talk to you, George. <laughs> that was the lovely Ingrid indeed in her professional capacity as the former head of the School of Pharmacy at Trinity College Dublin and an expert in pharmacognosy, i.e. medicinal plants. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie George Hook here with The Right Hook and I'm joined now by human rights advocate and deputy legal director at the American Civil Liberties Union, Louise Melling. Louise, welcome to The Right Hook studio. Why are you in Dublin? I'm in Dublin with on behalf of the Irish Council on Civil Liberties, we're here to launch a report uh, drawing the line, tackling tensions between religious freedom and equality. Is there a line to be drawn between religious freedom and equality? Well, there are all different kinds of occasions where questions of religious freedom shall bump up into questions of equal treatment, shall I say. The report addresses those kinds of tensions as they arise in the context of religious freedom and LGBT rights, religious freedom and reproductive freedom, and then also in terms of religious appearance. But, but um, where do you stand? Because uh, what we, we get very often in relation to civil liberties is increasingly, I would suggest, that the rights of minorities then have kind of been lost in this great debate about other people. You know, that with the LGB community or women's reproductive rights or whatever seems sometimes to trump religious freedoms, no? Well, I think I would respectfully disagree in the sense that... I thought that you would, yeah. I, and here I am doing yeah, exactly right, yeah. that. But, but, uh, so I think for from our standpoint, we at the ACLU, like the Irish Council on Civil yeah. Liberties, steadfastly defend the right to religious freedom. We go to court, we go to legislatures, and we defend religious freedom. We also defend equal treatment. And when we when we think about these two... There's a simple proposition, which is with religious freedom, as with many other rights, it's a fundamental right, but it doesn't include the right to infringe on others. It doesn't include the right to hurt others. And it's that line, that context that animates much of our, our positions. Yeah, but for instance, if you take, and I'm sure it's the same in the U.S., um, you, you, you have Catholic hospitals or you have Jewish hospitals or, or whatever. And, and our hospitals for, for, for an awful long time were essentially religious. I mean, most of the nurses on the floor in the theaters or whatever were nurses because we had nursing orders, not just in Ireland, around the globe you had nursing orders. Um, so doesn't that hospital then, when you talk about religious freedom, don't they have the freedom to say, well, this is our kind of hospital, for example? Well, if you're an institution 
And you're opening your doors to serve people of all faiths. You're opening yeah. your doors to the ambulance, for example. You're opening your doors to people in trouble. You're opening your doors to people coming in to deliver. Then, to simplify it grossly, you should play by the public rules. That's yeah. particularly true where you're getting government Big, funding. funding. And so, government so, funding is a key issue, of course. Well, but even yeah. without government funding, yeah. if, if you are the hospital to which I could be taken in an ambulance, yeah. I'm not making a your door is open to me. You should serve me based on based on medicine, not based on faith. But I, I don't, because particularly when you come from the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't necessarily know that it's you're a familiar with every local issue and so on. <laughs> but we try and keep it there for as general as we can if we if we look at it. The experience, I think, worldwide of, of religious hospitals, if I just stay with hospitals just for a moment as we try and tease this out, don't they accept everybody? I mean, when oh. the ambulance arrives, don't they accept everybody? I, I assume so. I would never no, dispute but I, that. No, no, but, once, but, but the question is, once yeah. you're in the door, so if yeah. I'm in an ambulance and I come in the door, I'm going to assume when I'm brought there that, med- that medicine is going to govern my care. Yeah. As opposed to that a principle of religious faith is going to govern my care. Yeah. So it, in the yeah. States, for example, this, this can arise. We had a client who was miscarrying and she went to her local hospital. The only hospital proximate to her. That hospital happens to be Catholic. Yeah. One in six beds in America are in a Catholic hospital. When she got to that hospital and she was in pain and she was miscarrying, she was told that there was nothing to do at that time and sent home. She came back that night. She was in pain. She was bleeding. She was sent home. She came back the next day still in pain and bleeding. And she was going to be sent home again when she started to deliver. At no point in her process was she told that if she conti- that if she continued the pregnancy that she was at risk to her health because of an infection she wasn't told that her pregnancy would not result at that given her condition in in a viable it wasn't but viable but is that incompetence or is it religious belief well, and she also wasn't told that the safest option or one of her options was to end the pregnancy okay so you as see, a matter we, of all right okay but we have a situation like this um, Mm-hmm. Where a woman died, yes, right? In yes, an incredibly tragic situation. Yes. But it wasn't the fault of a Catholic hospital. It was the the law of the land in relation to the doctor. So if the doctor went ahead and did something, he was in breach of the law rather than necessarily his Catholic faith. Isn't that so? As I understand it, in in Savita's case, I think in it, Ireland particularly. Right. I mean, if yes. we stay with reproductive issues, you have a problem with the law of the land. Like we've just got a rollicking from the UN about yes. our attitude. But it's interesting when I had the person from the UN on. Part of their reasoning for giving us a rollicking was that the the ashes of the baby came back in a cardboard box. But the ashes in the cardboard box came back from Britain. They didn't come back from Ireland. So I got a bit upset why we were getting a rollicking for something the British had done. Um, the thing is, I think you got a rollicking for more than the ashes. No, we I think did. But I mean, but... I, no, but but if we're going to get a rollicking, let's stick to the facts. The UN was my sort of approach to the thing. But but if I can, on, in the case of our client Tamisha Means, what was troubling and what indicated it was religion rather than medicine governing her care was yeah. she wasn't given information about her choices. Sure. She wasn't told about the health consequences. She was, and we believe that was because of the ethical and religious. Uh, yeah. directives governing whereas at least for us 
informed consent and referrals are critical components of medical care. Even if you won't yeah. provide, you need to send, you need you to see, give information. I, less to think I'm actually opposed to what you say. I am not, um, it, because I believe that we we should have whatever the problem is. There should be openness. I I raised the flag at a, a, uh-huh. a school uh-huh. in in a little village in Cork yesterday. Right, in that school there are thirty five nationalities represented. There are probably half a there are probably a dozen faiths. There there are probably another half a dozen cultures, and they all work incredibly well in a Catholic school per se. So therefore what less I don't I'm not some kind of right wing Catholic not here. I actually believe that in this country in the twenty first century we should be open to all that. But don't we also, if we fight for the rights of others, don't we also have to fight for for all, for everybody? Isn't everybody's freedom important? Everybody's freedom is important, but I think obviously people would draw the line in different places in the sense that we take a position that if you're an institution that opens your doors to the public, that then you can't impose your faith on those people entering the doors, which means you, if there's a law that's requiring something, a law that's requiring you to serve people in emergencies, a law requiring you not to discriminate, that you can't discriminate even if your faith tells you to discriminate because of the position you're in as an institution yeah. or serving the public. My guest is is human rights advocate uh, Louise Melling and deputy legal director at the American Civil Liberties Union, which is the American equivalent, I guess, of our Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Um, but... Th- the thing is, though, you are in a way taking an easy target because we're a nice, easy target here over in Ireland. We speak English and you can come over and give us a tough time and everything else. But meantime, meantime, if if my wife commits adultery in Saudi Arabia, she's going to be stoned. If my son were gay, he's going to get his head chopped off. Um, so that this isn't, we're not getting civil liberties for all. We're only getting civil liberties for some, are we not? I, I'm familiar with my context. I can't speak about Saudi Arabia. Our report really addresses the, the tensions. No, but do, do, you, do you know what I mean? That, yeah. that like, it's like the UN. The UN gives us a rollicking, but you know they're not going in to, to Mecca or Medina or somewhere and giving them a rollicking. Do you not think? Um, I can tell you that I spend most of my time giving the U.S. and the states of the U.S. a rollicking. That's where I'm. My, that's where my specialty lies. So that kind of skill you. I'm not even here on. to give Ireland a rollicking. I'm busy. I got my own turf. No, but okay. Let's stay with your turf just for a minute. This issue of of I mean, draws the line is is the whole purpose of the conference. Draws the line between the right to freedom of religion and equality rights. Do you believe, with your your vast experience in the U.S., do, because we're similar countries, you know, we're both Anglo-Saxon in our way, and we speak English, and in fact, you've got a bigger church-going population, I suspect, than we have, um, as a percentage of of the population. Um, why do we have to draw a line? Why do, why do you think these are conflicting? Why is there a confliction? Do you think between religion? and civil rights, whereas in effect there shouldn't be. The guy who started 
certainly all the Christian religion died on a cross for civil liberties. So why is there a confliction, do you think? Well, first of all, it's just as you point out, there isn't always a conflict. For example, think about Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King's role in using faith as a way to guide yeah. and lead the civil rights movement. And there are many, many places in which we all do agree and people of faith are on both sides of, yeah. of these debates. There are moments as we, in particular, as we think about public policy where there's tensions and there are lines that need to be drawn. So one example is in the states in terms of laws to end discrimination against lesbian, gays, bisexual, and transgender people. And you think about banning discrimination in employment or in what we call public accommodations, businesses like inns, restaurants, small businesses that open their doors to the public. I'm quite proud of us, like. I mean, we've we've just passed same-sex marriage. By popular referendum before we did anything. Yes. And so I'm kind of quite proud of us, you know? I mean, are gay people discriminated against? They probably are, but, like... There's, 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 uh, discrimination is part and parcel, sadly, of when I campaigned against apartheid in South Africa. Unfortunately, it's part of the human condition. And, and you and I fight for it in our different ways. Yes, and so there are moments, uh, just as you're describing, of these social changes where the rules start to change. So, for example, where where we start to move to end and eradicate discrimination against LGBT people. And when we do that, the questions are, does anybody get an exemption if their faith is telling them that same-sex marriage is wrong? Does anybody get an exemption if their faith is telling them that being gay or lesbian is is against is is morally wrong according to their religion? And that's where that's where the lines that's where the question of the lines comes up. And if you were, if we were, how do you think we're doing on on your sort of scorecard? Having come here and looked at us and read the report, how do you think we're doing? Well, I will, I'm going to go back to thinking. First of all, it's exciting to be in a country that had the that legalized same-sex marriage and did it by popular referendum and did it before we did power to you. We looked to you and just celebrated big, big celebrations across the ocean. That said, um, you do kind of have that, that eighth, <laughs> that constitutional amendment banning abortion in all circumstances, unless the woman, unless it's a threat to the woman's life. But I didn't come here to judge or no, no, Ireland at all. Not. I came here and to we'll talk about to differ on the to our experiences well. in we'll the states. Differ. But this is very important. The fact that we are now having a discussion about it, we didn't have a discussion about it in the 1950s. Exactly. Some really great social legislation was banned because the archbishop said you can't have it. We've yes. come a long way from there. Exactly. And I think at every moment where we come a long way, yeah. those social changes, I refer to it as the titanic plates are shifting. And so at those moments of, of major yeah. social changes, um, we find ourselves in, in robust debates about yeah. how we move and where yeah. we yeah. land. The only difference is we don't come over and lecture you, but you come and lecture us. I could have a long lecture and go at you and give you a rollicking indeed about why yet again the U.S. Senate has refused to vote in gun control and innocents will be murdered on a near weekly basis forevermore. My thanks to Louise Melling, my guest from the American Civil Liberties Union.